So have you ever done anything that you maybe thought you shouldn't have done, you know, a bad decision, you know, something that you, that you really should not have done? Maybe walked into something that you shouldn't have walked into. Well, a few weeks ago in Dearborn, Michigan, around 3.30 in the afternoon, a man walked into a pharmacy and he stole seven boxes of Rogaine. Now, Rogaine is a product that by design claims to help a person regrow their hair. Now, the thing is, the guy that stole the seven boxes of Rogaine is completely and totally bald. I mean, bless his heart. I mean, he had some pretty high expectations for what he was going to steal, right? Security cameras caught him, walk into the store, pick up a shopping bag. He, he filled up his shopping bag with, with the seven boxes of Rogaine, then he just walked out. The police gave a press release that goes like this. The Dearborn Police Department is asking for the public's assistance in identifying the suspect responsible for this crime. As it is suspected, he will continue committing this type of crime as 12 to 14 months of consistent use is needed to see results. (laughs) Whoever wrote that press release deserves a bonus check or at least a gift card to Tim Hortons. This is amazing. Not to be outdone, Chief Ron Haddad wanted to be sure that he got a good soundbite in as well. This is what the chief said. While this is not the most hair-raising crime, we must protect our retailers as these crimes drive up the retail costs for honest consumers. <laughs> yeah, I love those guys in Dearborn. They're having fun. Now, with all due respect and no offense to the makers of Rogaine, I'm pretty sure that the bald crook is not going to be comforted with the results of his stolen treatments. I'm thinking it's not really going to regrow his hair. You know, there's another kind of crook that does come with some guaranteed results. Results that don't take 12 to 14 months. Results that are immediate and they last for all eternity. Results that are not the the joy of some regrown hair, but results that bring comfort to your soul. What kind of crook is that? Well, let's find out. Listen to Psalm 23, the last part of verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23 is about the one true living God. It was written by David, who was king of Israel about a thousand years before Jesus was born. And David uses the language in his song that is used for the relationship that a shepherd would have with his sheep. And a shepherd's tools, his main equipment, are the rod and the staff. So are the rod and the staff kind of two instruments, or are they kind of a a two-in-one instrument? Well, yes, they are. (laughs) It could be either one. A shepherd might have a a staff, a a kind of a a long stick that's got kind of a a curled hook on one end. And sometimes that's called a, a shepherd's crook. And the shepherd's crook would be about as tall as the shepherd himself, maybe even taller. And in addition to the shepherd's crook, he might also have a a smaller stick, kind of a a rod that he might slide down into his belt, or or maybe it has a little handle that would latch on to his belt. Or the shepherd might have a two-in-one. He might have a a shepherd's crook, a a staff that's very long, and and it's got the, the curled hook on one side, but then it's just straight down on the bottom. 
And it has two uses. And we know about two uses, right? Ladies, you may have an, an eyeliner pin that on the one hand has a precision liquid liner and on the other end has a, a very easy crayon, an eye crayon, and, and you can make some, a variety of dramatic effects. Yeah, I got all that from Ulta's website because I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Gentlemen, you may have a Leatherman and depending on how you have it configured, one end of the Leatherman might be a, a set of needle nose pliers and the other end might be a reciprocating saw. I mean, it, however you put it together. Now, if you know anything about that, it wouldn't be a reciprocating saw, but it kind of sounds pretty cool. Or maybe you just have a highlighter. You know, one end is a yellow marker and the other end is a, is a stylus for you to use on your smartphone or your tablet or, or maybe even just simplify it, just a pencil, right? A pencil writes on one end and, and erases on the other. We, we all understand and know that there are instruments out there that, that have two purposes. And so what are the purposes of the shepherd's rod and the shepherd's staff? What would you use a shepherding rod for? Why would you need that end of the shepherd's crook. Well, if we're using the, the two-in-one idea, I want you to imagine a bit that you're a shepherd in ancient Israel. And let's just say that a, that a lion or a bear is approaching your flock, maybe early in the morning when the sun's rising or, or maybe late at night when the sun is setting. What are you going to do with that lion or that bear? I mean, are you going to use Jedi mind tricks? These are not the sheep you're looking for. Go about your business. Move on, bear, move on. Yeah, Jedi mind tricks don't work on lions and bears. They only work on stormtroopers. Everybody knows that. But the picture that we have here is that no mind tricks are going to work. If you're going to have any impact on that lion and that bear, you're going to need the non-curly end of that shepherd's crook. Because you're going to have to take that end and you're going to have to, to poke at and move away and stab at and, and maybe beat away that, that lion or that bear as it's licking its chops, looking at your flock of lamb chops. You're going to have to do something about it. But you know, the truth is we get to thinking about that and we're like, well, that can't be true. How's a, how's a shepherd going to beat off a lion or a bear with a, with a stick? Let me remind you of the quote I used a couple of months ago about ancient shepherds. J.L. Porter says this, They were more like warriors marching to the battlefield, a, a long gun slung from the shoulder, a, a dagger and heavy pistols in the belt, a light battle axe or an iron-headed club in the hand. Such were the equipments, and their fierce, flashing eyes and scowling countenances showed but too, too, too plainly that they were prepared to use their weapons at any moment. Ancient shepherds were tough dudes. And they used that shepherd's crook, they used that shepherding rod like a, like a ninja. They were going to protect those sheep. And that's the language that David uses. That's the, the wording that David uses to tell us that God is his good shepherd. So what does that mean? Does that mean God's our ninja warrior fighting for us? Well, a little bit, kind of, to some degree. But not exactly the way that we would think. Yes, God is always protecting his children. But there is a sense that, that we have an idea of what that protection means. And sometimes we have some demands about what that protection means. This is the promise that Jesus made that he perfectly guaranteed 
with his crucifixion and his resurrection. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's amazing. But he keeps talking. Listen to verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This is an amazing trilogy of protection from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit quickens your heart and your soul and your mind to to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel. And Jesus, the Son, through the cross and, and through your repentance, gives eternal life. And God the Father puts his eternal hands over all of their work. There's nothing greater than that protection. And the amazing promise of this amazing protection says this to the believer. You will never perish. No one will snatch you. That's the promise. Jesus did not promise us that we will never get sick. Jesus did not promise us that we will never get a bad grade. Jesus did not promise us that we will never have a wreck. Jesus did not promise us that we would never lose our game. He didn't promise us that we would never lose our job or we would never lose our home or we would never lose our mind. That's not the promise of Jesus. And why is it important that we understand that's not the promise of Jesus? Here's why. Trevin Wax writes, If you believe that coming to Christ will make life easier and better, then you will be disappointed when suffering comes your way. Storms destroy our homes. Cancer eats up our bodies. Economic recessions steal our jobs. If you see God as a vending machine, then you will become disillusioned when your candy bar doesn't drop. You may get angry, and you may want to start banging on the machine. Anybody been banging on that machine this week? He goes on. Or maybe you'll be plagued with guilt, convinced that your suffering indicates God's disapproval of something that you've done. And then he says this. When we emphasize the temporal blessings that come from following Christ, we plant the seeds for a harvest of heartbreak. Please do not plant those seeds. Please don't. You see, the the beauty of God's eternal protection does not mean that we will enjoy earthly perfection. What it means is that we gain and we are given an excellent position. This is what Peter said, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you... You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then on verse 10. Sorry, I got slow. For you were once not a people, but now, now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now, now you have received mercy. If you are truly saved, Your protection is completely and undeniably wrapped up in your position. 
The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, set his affections on you. He saved you and redeemed you through the precious blood of his own precious son. So if you are in Christ, that means you are a child of God. If you are in Christ, you are a member of his chosen people. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen of his holy nation. You are a prince, a princess, a king, a queen in his royal priesthood. And does God use his shepherding rod to protect his royal family from sickness and storms and trials and tribulations and troubles and difficulties and dangers and tragedies? Yes, he does. Does God use his shepherding rod to protect his royal family from every single physical danger and difficulty we will face on this earth? No, he does not. That didn't sound very comforting at first glance, does it? But see, here's the thing. The hope of the gospel is not a first glance hope. The hope of the gospel is is deeper and richer and more amazing than we can possibly imagine. It's not a first glance hope. Four years ago, a powerful tornado struck the city of, of Moore, Oklahoma. Sam Storms pastors a church about 20 minutes north of where the tornado hit. His church sent out volunteers to provide help for the relief and the recovery after the tornado. And then days later, he wrote this. Events such as this should remind us that no place on earth is safe and that we will all one day die unless Jesus returns first. Hmm, glad I came to church today. Thanks for the encouraging news, Dow. Oh, it's, it's getting ready to get better. Whether by a peaceful natural death at the age of 90 or by a sudden heart attack at 50 or in a car accident at 15 or by a slow battle with cancer at virtually any age, we will all likewise die. Heading for the doors now, right? <laughs> Hang in there with me one more. We are not immortal. The only ultimately and eternally safe place to be is in the arms of our Heavenly Father, from which no tornado, no earthquake, no tsunami, no cancer, no car wreck can ever snatch us or wrench us free. Jesus said, You will never perish. Jesus said, No one will snatch you. That's the promise. And the shepherding rod reminds us of that promise. The shepherding rod reminds us that the Lord is uniquely protecting us. And that should comfort our souls. But the rod is not just for predators and storms. You see, sheep, they aren't the the smartest being in the coffee. And sometimes a sheep dozes off just falls asleep when it's supposed to be awake and moving along. And sometimes a sheep dazes off and starts staring at butterflies in the sky and does not walk where it needs to walk. And and the shepherd has to take that shepherding rod and and poke them along, get them going, keep them moving in the right direction. Other times, though, it's it's not dozing and it's not dazing. It's just good old-fashioned disobedience. Let me ask you a question. How many of you parents or grandparents or or aunts and uncles or or babysitters 
have been with a toddler and, and maybe said something like this, don't touch that remote control. And then what happens? Their face freezes. They don't smile. They don't frown. They just stare at you. Their mouth's open just a little bit. And they just stare at you. And this lasts for about four seconds, right? So what's going through their mind during those four seconds? Well, something like this. I wonder if she really means that. I wonder what would happen if I do touch the remote. I wonder what would happen if I don't touch the remote. What am I, what am I missing here? Or I wonder if that silly man thinks he can really outrun me, you know? I mean, there's something going through their minds. And so that lasts about four seconds. And then, then on the fifth second, their eyebrows raise just a little bit. And boom, they grab the remote control. They run down the hallway. They run in the bathroom and they throw it down on the bathroom floor and all the tile and it breaks and shatters in pieces. And maybe that's no big deal to you. Maybe you just, you know, go down to the store and get one of them $4.99 universal remotes and no big deal. But... Imagine that they do that three or four times a week. <laughs> I mean, are you just going to keep spending $20 a week on, on new remotes? I mean, at the very least, you're going to hide the remote, right? But that won't work either because you'll forget where you hid the remote. And so then you'll still spend $20 a week buying new remotes all the time because you can't find where you hid the remote. Now, here's the thing. If you're wise, and let me just graciously say this, we are living in a country a nation, a world with a lot of adults who are not acting wisely. And some of those adults are us. But if you're wise, you will establish some method of instruction to make sure that that toddler moves toward obedient listening, not for remote control, but as a basic desperate requirement of being a human a humanity it desperately needs if you're going to live in this world a concept of obedient listening even just for your own good if you're wise you'll do that but sometimes we're not wise are we and don't forget this too sheep they do that same thing with the remote control <laughs> they, they do the thing they know they shouldn't do and guess what not just sheep I do it and you do it we we are all prone to wander in that way and so sometimes the shepherding rod is not protecting it's correcting Psalm 94 verse 12 says this blessed is the man whom you chasten O Lord <laughs> blessed Happy, satisfied, joyful is the person that the Lord chastens, disciplines, rebukes, reproves, and corrects. Now, I'll just go ahead and speak on behalf of all of us. None of that sounds like anything that would make us happy. So why in the world does the psalmist write it? And even more so, why is that found in other places in the Bible, that same exact truth? Well, here's at least one reason why. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And does that mean God's some kind of cosmic abuser? No. 
Let's go back to our, our toddler and the remote control. Let's imagine that it's not a remote control. Let's imagine that the toddler is wanting to walk into a big pit of hungry hippos. And I ain't talking about the plastic ones with the white marbles. I'm talking about real hungry hippos. A loving dad is not going to turn to his wife and say, hang on a second, honey. Let's, let's just see how this plays out. Let's just see what he can do. You know, this, this experience might put a little hair on his chest. Let's just, let's just hang out for a second here. <laughs> now, a loving parent knows when to rescue. So do we think that God knows that less? Do we think that the, the creator and the owner and the sustainer of the universe doesn't know what is best? Do we think in some way that he doesn't know what to do? Octavius Winslow said this, we shall never fully know until we arrive in heaven and how many instances and ways we were kept by God. From how many a fatal mistake the Lord went before to preserve us. We rebelled perhaps at the interference of the correcting rod. Nevertheless, when the mist and the cloud uplifted, revealing the imminent peril to which we had been exposed, we then saw clearly the wisdom and the mercy of our God in imposing those divine restraints, but for which we should have blindly and inevitably wrecked all that was precious to us in this life and glorious in the life that is to come. Sometimes God is protecting and sometimes he is correcting. The shepherding rod, when it is protecting it brings comfort to us. And the shepherding rod, when it is correcting, it brings comfort to us, even if we don't feel that comfort in the moment. And if you don't feel that comfort, if you've never felt that comfort, or maybe put another way, if you know nothing of what it means to be protected and especially corrected by the Lord, then don't assume that means you're a great Christian and everything's fine. In fact, it may mean that you're not a Christian. You see, all of us, we, we look at certain people in our lives and, and we say, well, what's the deal with him? What's the deal with her? Why is it that I get in trouble for doing the exact same thing that they do, but they don't get in trouble? Why is it that, that I'm having to carry the load of everything while they're loafing off. Why is it that I keep getting the wrong end of the deal? We all have moments like that where we look at people like that in our homes and at our jobs and, and at school and, and in the community and in the world and on the public scene. But let me encourage some of you and, and maybe warn some of you with just one simple thought. Thomas Watson said this, God's hand is heaviest when it is lightest. God punishes most when he does not punish. Listen, the, the shepherding rod, when it is correcting, when it is confronting you, be of good cheer. Because that means that you are the Lord's. And if it is not confronting you, and if it is not correcting you, be of great fear. And beg and please God, 
to show you your salvation. Don't hate the rod. Don't hate it when it corrects. It is a sign that you are a child of the king. It is a sign that the Lord is your shepherd. And he is a good, good shepherd. So what about the curled end of the staff? What about the, the part that has a little curly cue on the end? What, what about that part? It's not the rod part, it's the staff part. What about that? What's its purpose? Have you ever seen a, a book or an ad or a post on the internet and the title says something like this? 7,000 household uses for nutmeg or something along those lines. You know, I've seen those things before. That's, that's kind of what the, the rod and the staff are. And we're just scratching the surface of all the different ways that a, a shepherd can use the rod and the staff. And so for the, the curled part, for the hook part, I'm, I'm just going to use one picture. And it's not like the old vaudeville acts, you know, where the, the big hook would, would pull a, a bad act off of the stage. And it's not like a, a big hook that you drop down in the water trying to catch a fish. No, it's, it's something different. You see, sometimes a, a shepherd, instead of using the rod to keep the sheep safe or to keep the sheep on track, they'll turn that crook around and they'll take the curled part and, and they'll just wrap that little curled hook around the leg of the sheep. Not, not hard and, and just put it right around the leg and just, just hold the sheep still. And then sometimes just gently pull the sheep closer. Shepherd's not pushing, he's not prodding, he's not really correcting in a sense, but he's, he's pulling, he's pulling that sheep near to him. Psalmist said this, the nearness of God is my good. Margaret's father died when she was two years old. Her only brother died later in war. When she was 24 years old, she had had no one pursue her romantically for marriage and, and she needed to do something with her life and so she ended up having to go and, and work as a maid in, in someone's home full time. When she was 30, her mom died. At the age of 30, this is what she wrote in her diary. I have been left an orphan in this perplexing world of sin and sorrow. She heard the gospel when she was young, but, but she pushed against it. She kind of lived a bit of a rebellious life and, and wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus. But over time, God in his grace allowed the, the gospel to capture her heart. And when she was still a young woman, she surrendered to Christ. And then, a year after her mom died, her dream of marriage came true. Christian man named Frederick married her and, and in taking her as his bride, he also released her from having to be a servant in that home and, and she came to, to build and start a family with Frederick. Over the next six years, they had three boys, Andrew, Henry, William, and George. They also endured the overwhelming pain of, of losing a child in childbirth during that same time. Margaret had been sick for a long time with a lot of different things, and after George was born, her sickness got even worse. A doctor came and told her that 
it was tuberculosis. The only reason we even know who Margaret is is because according to author Tony Reinke, it's because of her diary. And the only reason we know about her diary is because John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, somebody gave the diary to Newton and he read through it and he was captivated and captured by her love for Christ. And so he saw to it that her diary was published so that other people could read it. So the doctor told her that the tuberculosis was not looking good and it looked like she would not make it. And she didn't. On June 28, 1789, Margaret died just five days after her 37th birthday. She left behind Frederick and her three young boys. But she also left behind her diary. And this is part of her very last entry, 15 days before she died on June 13th. This is what she wrote. When I walk through the valley, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Bless God, I have not one fear concerning dying. How? How could she not have one fear concerning dying? The reason she had no fear is because she already knew what it meant to be pulled near to God. See, that that curled part of the crook had already captured her heart. She had already learned what it meant to be safely in the arms of the Almighty. She goes on to say this, That Almighty Lord, who has so wonderfully preserved me to the present moment, will not forsake me in my last extremity. No, when flesh and heart fail, he will be the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So let me, let me try to hurt our feelings a little bit or at least challenge us. What would your diary say? What would you write 15 days before your death? Is the Lord truly your shepherd? If not, then surrender to him today. Find the eternal satisfaction that comes from the shepherding rod and the shepherding staff. But if the Lord is your shepherd, then I I plead with you today, find great comfort in the rod and the staff. Why? Because all of these things are true He will not forsake you. He will not fail you. And he will be your strength. And he will be your portion. He will be your home. He will be your shepherd today and forever. It is what he has promised. And his promise cannot be snatched away.